This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Good morning, colleagues, panelists, members of the media. I'd like to welcome you to this, the first virtual media conference for the university, at which the University of the Witwatersrand will announce the first COVID-19 vaccine trial in Africa. My name is Zeblon Vilagazi, the Vice Principal and Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research and Postgraduate Affairs uh, at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, and your conference facilitator this morning. This is a story about a trial which I do believe does bring hope to all Africans and the world during this very challenging and difficult time. And most importantly, it's heartening to note that it's being led by world-class South African scientists working on this problem on the African continent in partnership with their peers across the world. In this case, it is uh, the University of Witwatersrand and Oxford University. My first job this morning is to introduce these uh, leading scholars and of course we'll all have to ensure that you stick to our limited times. Our panelists are, I'll introduce them just now, Professor Joni Mathangu, Professor Shabir Mahdi, Professor Helen Rees, Professor Helen Glenda Gray, Professor Jeffrey Pachele, and Dr. Sandile Gutelis, who is the uh, new Director General in the National Department of Health. Just a brief note about our housekeeping rules are that, uh, first, please mute your microphones now. Second, after the panelists have spoken, I will facilitate a Q&A session. Third, for now, please place any questions you might have uh, in the Q&A panel. Um, on the screens, together with your name and the media house that you represent. Again, to the panelists, fourthly, please keep it short and simple owing to our limited time. For now, I'll hand over to Professor Shabir Mahdi, who is the principal investigator of the study and director of the South African Medical Research Council's Vaccine Vaccines and Infectious Disease Analytics Research Unit, VIDA, based at WITS, and is the Department of Science and Innovation National Research Foundation South African Chair in Vaccine Preventable Diseases. Over to you, Professor Mahdi. So, uh, thank you, Professor Kazi, and good morning to uh, everyone that's made the time uh, to attend this morning's webinar. So what I'm going to do over the course of the next 15 to 20 minutes is really introduce you to, as Professor Lukasi mentioned, the first COVID-19 vaccine study, which we are about to embark on in South Africa. Uh, so just by way of introduction, uh, as Professor Lukasi has mentioned, I'm part, I got a research unit that's funded by the Medical Research Council in South Africa, as well as by the National Research Foundation. And by way of an introduction in terms of what we've been doing over the past 24 years, uh, is that this research unit has really been at the forefront globally in terms of the clinical development of a number of life-saving vaccines, which are used in children especially. 
and in particular vaccines, again, the leading causes of death from pneumonia and viral disease. In addition to which, we've also been very much at the forefront in terms of vaccination uh, of pregnant women as an example uh, for influenza. And more, most recently, uh, looking at uh, vaccinating pregnant women uh, against uh, with the RSV vaccine, which is a leading cause of hospitalization in children under one year of age. Now, the reason why I mentioned this in the context of COVID-19 is that this is not the first time that South Africa will be embarking on what is really a first in any low-middle-income country on research which has got huge implications in informing policy, both nationally as well as globally. Because of the work that we've done over the past 24 years in terms of a number of these childhood uh, life-saving vaccines, that has actually informed World Health Organization recommendations for the introduction of those vaccines into public immunization programs uh, throughout the world, and especially focused in low-middle-income country. As an example, the pneumococcal conjunct vaccine and rotavirus vaccine, which are now used in a majority of countries, each year saves roughly about 500,000 children from dying each year. In South Africa alone, it saves about 5,000 children dying since it was included into the immunization program. South Africa was one of the first countries in low middle income, of all low middle income countries to actually introduce the vaccine into its public immunization program. And the main reason for that was because of our ability to provide the evidence from South Africa as to why it was necessary for these vaccines to be included urgently into our public immunization programs. So the clinical development of vaccines is something that is not foreign to us. Uh, it certainly is not foreign to my own research group. And there are a number of other institutions in the country that have been very much involved at a number of levels in terms of this clinical development of these life-saving vaccines. So obviously the reason that we gathered this morning is really to discuss the first COVID-19 vaccine clinical development that will be taking place on the African continent. And the question arises, if, if the question arises at all, is why do we actually need a COVID-19 vaccine? So what we've seen over the past few weeks is really sort of a downturn in terms of the outbreak of COVID-19 in high-income countries. In this particular example, I illustrate the experience from the United Kingdom and from Italy, where you see after a peak early on about the middle of April, there's been sort of a subsiding of this particular wave of epidemic. In contrast, in South Africa, what we see is an escalation in terms of the number of cases, at a peak in the United Kingdom and in Italy, the average number of cases diagnosed each week was roughly about 35,000. And certainly in South Africa, in terms of the current trajectory, we're very much nearing that mark in terms of average number of cases diagnosed each week being close to 35,000. And that is despite there being limited, much less testing that's done in South Africa compared to many of the high-income countries. Now, does it on its own mean that the United Kingdom, Europe, United States, and other countries are out of the woods in terms of this particular problem of the COVID-19 pandemic? And the answer to that is we don't know. And the only thing that will allow them to sustain sort of what's occurring right now in terms of low number of cases is if they are able to effectively manage what you call the effective reproductive rate, which means that for every one person, that person should not, on average, infect another person. It should be less than one. The effective reproductive rate for this particular virus is at about 2.5, meaning that in a population that's completely susceptible, 
between two to three other people will be infected with every one case that's infected, and they will go on to continue infecting another two to three people. Now, the lockdown itself in many of these countries effectively was able to bring that effective reproductive rate to under one. And if they are wanting to sustain this low level of number of cases, they would need to keep the effective reproductive rate less than one. Is that something that's plausible? And the answer to that, we don't know. It really depends to what, to what extent they're able to actually manage it. As we've been reading in the media over the past few days, a number of countries, including in Italy, including in Spain, including in the many uh, of the states in the, United, in the United States of America, including in uh, South Korea, and including uh, Beijing in China, have seen an upsurge in terms of the number of cases. And the reason for that upsurge is essentially is that with the lifting of, the, of a total lockdown and where there's uh, greater intermingling and non-adherence to these non-pharmaceutical interventions such as physical spacing and wearing of non-surgical face masks, we effectively can expect a rebound in terms of the number of cases because that effectively productive rate is going to go above one. And that is pretty much what also happened in South Africa. So on the left, what you basically see is that after that initial bump around about the middle of uh, March, when we went into a lockdown, there was sort of some waning in terms of the number of cases. But during the level five lockdown itself, that effective reproductive rate in South Africa did not go under one. So we had ongoing community transmission. And it comes as little surprise that with the non-adherence to these non-pharmaceutical interventions, we've got this rebound that is currently taking place in South Africa, more so in the Western Cape, but very soon we would be in a very similar sort of a setting in Gauteng and in many of the other provinces. So the magnitude of this rebound really depends on how effective we are with sustaining the non-pharmaceutical interventions. And obviously, uh, being under level five lockdown is simply not an option for the next two to three years before a vaccine becomes available or until a vaccine becomes available. So in all likelihood, what we're going to experience in South Africa is similar to what is being experienced in many Northern Hemisphere countries, is that as soon as the lockdown is being lifted, we see an increase in terms of the effective reproductive rate, which lends itself to these subsequent waves. And we can expect subsequent waves of outbreaks of COVID-19, at least for the next 12 to 24 months, or until, unless a vaccine becomes available sooner. Now, in addition to that, our experience in terms of why we project there will be multiple waves, and although it is there's some uh, reservations in making direct comparisons between the Spanish flu of 1918 and COVID-19, is that essentially even to the Spanish flu, there were at least three to four waves of the outbreak before it became sort of more of a seasonal virus where a large percentage of the population had already been infected making that ability to transmit between people less efficient. And in fact, with the Spanish flu, the second wave was much more severe than the first wave. Part of the reason for that was because of the mutation of the virus, which fortunately doesn't seem to be the case with COVID-19. So what are we aiming to do? What we're really aiming to do is sort of uh, take a lead on nature in terms of inducing immunity in a population in a much more controlled manner than would occur through natural infection, and at the same time trying to ensure that in a sense we do a better job than nature in terms of the type of immune responses that are actually elicited by exposure to what we call antigens of this particular virus. Now, what we do know about COVID-19, the SARS coronavirus 2, is that once a person is infected, 
a person does actually develop antibody responses, which are able to kill off the virus. It's got neutralizing activity. But that immune responses to the virus seems to be more robust in individuals with severe COVID-19 rather than asymptomatic individuals or mild individual, mildly symptomatic individuals. And that has got implications because roughly about 95% of people that are infected with the virus are either mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. So we're not too sure to what extent natural exposure would actually induce robust immune responses, which are actually sustained for a long period of time. In addition to which, what we also know, unfortunately, is that groups of individuals that are at greatest risk of developing severe disease, i.e. the elderly, actually have very poor immune responses to natural infection. So there are a number of unknowns in terms of natural exposure to the virus, which includes the duration of immunity following natural infection, the robustness of the memory immune responses, which are critical in terms of conferring immunity in the medium to long term, as well as to what extent this naturally induced immunity will actually protect against subsequent infection, especially when the subsequent exposures takes place at a later stage uh, in a person's life. Colleagues, I assume you have a network uh, issue here. Zeblon, can you hear me? I can hear you, um, Shabir. I can hear you. Sorry about that. If we can hear you, we can see the slides. Okay. So where, we, where are we in terms of COVID-19 vaccine development? Uh, currently, there's more than 115 potential vaccines that are under development. Many of these vaccines currently are actually in a preclinical phase, which means that they haven't actually gone into human studies. Now, there are a number of technologies that are being used, which I'm not going to go into the detail on, uh, including sort of traditional technologies where the virus, the actual virus itself is either weakened, as an example, measles vaccine is an example of a vaccine where the virus is weakened and is able to be used as a, as a vaccine because it doesn't have potential to cause disease. Alternatively, that virus can be inactivated. As an example, the polio vaccine that's given uh, as an injection is an example of an inactivated virus. In addition to that, the majority of the other vaccines that are used in immunization programs are what we call protein-based vaccines, where a certain component of the bacteria of the pathogen is used. We understand that a component to be important in terms of virulence of that particular organism, and that if you're able to raise antibodies to that particular sort of antigen, that, anti that antibody would protect one against developing disease when one is exposed to that particular uh, pathogen. So those are the tradition traditional approaches that have been used in terms of vaccine development. But more recently, and there are no vaccines that are currently licensed which have used this technology, are what we call viral vector vaccines as well as nucleic acid uh, uh, platform technology in terms of development of vaccines. Now, these technologies have already been used in terms of therapeutics aimed at the treatment of cancer, as an example, or in terms of therapeutics trying to correct for congenital abnormalities. But these, vaccine, these sort of technologies have not been previously used for development of a vaccine. And for COVID-19, it's really the first vaccine which is, using this vac which is using these technologies that will go into licensure. So these technologies have been used previously in terms of experimental vaccines, but none of those have actually gone into licensure to be used in general, for, for general use. Now, of these 115 vaccines, currently uh, there are six vaccines that are in human studies, of which the one is the one that we're going to be uh, evaluating in South Africa. But also soberingly, 
is that of these 115 vaccines that are currently in development, we would be extremely successful if even five of these vaccines are actually eventually licensed. So with vaccine development, there's a huge attrition rate in terms of where people start off from and the number of vaccines that eventually go through the different hurdles, including showing safety, including showing efficacy, which is protection against disease, before they are actually licensed by regulated authorities. And in the next two years, we would really be fortunate if we even had two of these 115 vaccines that are actually licensed for use uh, throughout the world. So as a brief uh, introduction to the study we are about to implement in South Africa, this particular vaccine was developed by the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford. It is what is known as a non-replicating adenovirus vector COVID-19 vaccine. And the plan in South Africa is for this vaccine to be evaluated for safety and foremost safety, both in individuals with and without HIV, in addition to which we're wanting to see how HIV infected as well as uninfected individuals mount an immune response and particularly in a group without HIV, how well the vaccine works in terms of protecting them against developing COVID-19 illness. The study itself is being sponsored by the University of Oxford who will be collaborating with on the study, but the study is led by South Africans with myself as being a national principal investigator and the funding from the study is not coming from the United Kingdom, but rather it's coming, it's been co-funded by the South African Medical Research Council and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The plan currently is to get the study started during the course of this week in three sites in Gauteng, with the possibly expansion to two additional sites in the Western Cape over the course of the next uh, one to two weeks. So what do we know about this vaccine and how much has been done in terms of evaluating whether it would work or not? There's been a number of studies that have been already completed in preclinical development, which basically looks at different animal models, including non-human primates, to show proof of principle in terms of the immunogenicity of the vaccine, as well as whether the vaccine is actually protects against the challenge in non-human primates. And those data are now in the public domain. So that has been completed and that allowed for the United Kingdom to start its phase one studies, which have also been completed, which basically tries to determine the best dosage that should be used in this sort of studies. Currently underway in the United Kingdom as well is an additional phase two, phase three study, where we now really look to see whether the vaccine protects against disease in 10,000 individuals, of whom 7,000 have already been enrolled in the United Kingdom. And they anticipate that they will have completed the enrollment of those 10,000 by the end of July. In the United Kingdom, a large percentage of those individuals that are now being enrolled are healthcare workers. So the studies that we are about to embark on in South Africa basically plans on enrolling 2,000 individuals in South Africa and in a separate study in Brazil, which will also be initiated during the course of this week, they're planning on enrolling a further 5,000 individuals. These three studies are all different studies and each of them are designed to be able to show whether the vaccine works in their own locality. In addition to which, there's another study that has been currently planned for a United States that will enroll up to 30,000 individuals in the United States. So before we were able to start the study, uh, we obviously had to go through a number of approval processes, which included approval by the University of Advertisements Ethics Committee, the South African Health and Pharmaceutical Products Authority, SAPRA, as well as the Ethics Committee at Oxford University, 
And last but not least, uh, we needed to get approval from the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing and Fisheries uh, for us to be able to import the product into South Africa. Now, what this vaccine is all about is that it takes a viral vector, which is known as adenovirus. Adenoviruses are viruses that are very, very common in humans. They usually cause a very mild illness. But the adenovirus that is being used in this particular vaccine, in fact, is not found in humans and doesn't usually cause infection in humans at all. But rather, it comes from a different species. And that particular adenovirus has been genetically engineered to be such that it is unable to replicate. And I think that's important. This is a non-replicating adenovirus, which means that when given, when administered, it, is not, it doesn't have the capacity to continue replicating as would occur with the virus that is alive. This particular non-replicating adenovirus has had the, gen the genetic sequencing, which codes for what is known as a spike protein, which is this proteins that are found on the surface of the coronavirus, which we believe to be important in terms of the virulence of the organism, that genetic material has been inserted in this adenovirus, allowing for the expression of those proteins on the surface of this particular vector. When that is injected into the individual, the immune system is such that it processes that and it allows for that spike proteins to be presented to the immune cells in the body, and that elicits an immune response. And the immune response that it elicits includes development of antibodies. Now, the circulation of those antibodies is what protects one from developing disease. So when one becomes exposed to the infection, that antibody will attach to the spike protein and prevent the spike, prevent the virus from attaching to a human cell. And that is the entire philosophy behind vaccines. It's really to produce antibody largely, which allows that uh, sort of interaction between the pathogen and the body tissue from being uh, avoided. In addition to which, some of these vaccines also produce cells which are known as cytotoxic cells that are able to directly kill off the virus as it enters into the body. So what we're planning in South Africa are three different groups. Uh, we're starting off literally tomorrow with starting off with group one, which are people without HIV that will receive two doses of the vaccine that are spaced four weeks apart. And this is basically to do an intensive analysis in terms of the safety of the vaccine as well as in terms of its immunogenicity. Uh, over the course of the next week or so, we will then start with group two, which is a larger group of 1,900 individuals. And this particular group, at this stage, we're planning on giving a single dose of vaccine, but depending on the data that comes from the Oxford study, where two dose schedule is currently being evaluated, we might or might not decide to actually include a second dose of the vaccine. This particular group is probably the most important group because it gives us a greater window of insight in terms of the safety of the vaccine, as well as whether this vaccine actually protects against COVID-19. So in this particular group, we're evaluating for vaccine efficacy. Last but not least is after group one has been completed, we will then embark on a small study in people living with HIV, really to see how they actually respond to the vaccine given two doses spaced one month apart. All of these participants will be followed up for 12 months, including having calls every two weeks to assess for respiratory illness. And if they do have symptoms, they will be investigated for COVID-19. In addition to which throughout the 12 month period, all of them will be evaluated for safety in terms of any sort of adverse events that might occur. And what allows us to be able to decide whether the adverse event is from the vaccine or not is what we call a placebo group. In this particular study, the placebo group, which means that you're giving an inert substance to that individual, serves as a control group 
is going to be normal saline. And that allows us to understand whether the vaccine works as well as whether there are any differences in terms of adverse events, which might be or might not be more prevalent uh, in the group that actually received the vaccine. So the importance of having a placebo group is essential to best quantify both the safety of the vaccine as well as its efficacy. So who do we plan on enrolling? Essentially, we're looking at adults between 18 to 65 years of age that are willing that provide informed consent and are able to show an understanding in terms of the study through an assessment before they actually get involved, before they actually enroll. Uh, they need to be able to comply with all study requirements. They need to test HIV negative for group one and group two. And if they're females, they need to be on contraception. In terms of the exclusion criteria, we're basically excluding people that are pregnant or planning on becoming pregnant that are lactating at this point in time, individuals with a history of chronic respiratory or cardiovascular disease, people that are very obese, as well as people that might have had a respiratory illness in the past month. Now, all of this is really geared towards, like I said, relatively healthy individuals up to 65 years of age. And there is a possibility that this vaccine will be less immunogenic and less efficacious in people older than the age of 65. But that itself is not a complete disaster because one of the things that we're hoping to be able to achieve with vaccination is what we call herd immunity. Now, what herd immunity is all about is that when there's a certain threshold of individuals that are actually become immune to the virus, the ability of that virus to transmit in the population, including to transmit to people that are not vaccinated or people that would mount a poor immune response to the vaccine is actually diminished. The effective reproductive rate is driven to under one. So what we believe will happen is that even if this vaccine is not completely as immunogenic and as efficacious in the elderly, in people older than the age of 65, or others with other medical conditions, if we can get at least 60% of the population to develop immunity by vaccination, we will, able, we will be able to actually reduce the risk even of those individuals that aren't actually able to mount an adequate response to the vaccine. So finally, in terms of timelines, we, ex we anticipate to be enrolling the first subject tomorrow. Uh, that will be done in Gauteng, and we're wanting to enroll the 2,000 subjects over a period of a, over a relatively short period of about two months. Uh, hoping to conclude by the middle of August. All of the subjects will subsequently be followed up for at least 12 months. And then uh, in terms of when we'll know whether the vaccine works or not is dependent on how quickly uh, we are through individuals that unfortunately will have got infected with COVID-19. And as soon as we have 42 cases in the study, at that time point, we'll be able to analyze to see whether or not the vaccine provides at least 60% protection against COVID-19. Over and above that, importantly, is that this study is being monitored by an independent data and safety management committee, in addition to the oversight by the ethics committee, as well as SAPRA. That safety and that data and safety management committee, monitoring committee basically reviews the data from the United Kingdom, from Brazil, as well as the South African studies almost on a weekly basis. So unfortunately, until we have a vaccine that is available, all that we really have available to us grant right now to be able to reduce the rate of transmission of this virus are the non-pharmaceutical interventions. And we're really going to be compelled to adhere to these sort of measures for the foreseeable future, at least probably for the next two years, unless a vaccine becomes available for us to be able to mitigate the full potential impact 
of COVID-19 on South Africans. So with that, I thank you for your attention and I'd like to hand you back to Prof. Lakazi. Thank you, Professor Mari. Uh, now, uh, I'll, I'll hand over to uh, Professor Jeremy Masangu, if he's able to join us, the head of the School of Pathology and chair of the Medical Research Council. Prof Mahlangu um, um, is still struggling with his audio. I'm just busy trying to help him get it sorted out. So maybe we can just move on to the next speaker so long. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you once again, uh, Professor Mari, for that very exciting presentation. And we look forward to seeing how this process develops. And now, colleagues, um, I'll hand over to uh, and call on the next speaker, Professor Rees, who is the... Uh, who is the chair of the Africa Regional Immunization Technical Advisory Group of the World Health Organization, chair of the Program and Policy Committee of uh, the Vaccine Alliance, chair of South Africa Health Products Regulatory Authority, and executive director of the VETS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute. So over to you, Professor Rees. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. And thanks very much, Shabir, for that very comprehensive introduction. And this is actually a really exciting time. This will be the first COVID vaccine trial in the African region. Um, so I, I've got the privilege of working with Shabir on this study um, and uh, also working with him on Alive, which is one of its flagship programs on vaccinology. So Vitz really does have a major interest in, in vaccines and vaccine development. But I'm talking today more with a global health hat on because I serve on a number of committees, as you just heard, that have global interests in developing and disseminating vaccines, particularly to the poorest countries of the world and including the African region. Um, so I'm going to start by just giving you a little story. I chair um, a scientific advisory committee for a group called CEPI, which is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. And in January of this year, we had an emergency meeting of that scientific advisory committee because of this unknown virus that had been identified in China. CEPI's role, CEPI was set up after the Ebola uh, outbreaks in West Africa. Uh, it has a lot of global international funding and its role is to develop vaccines against emerging pathogen threats. Uh, and it's invested in a number of neglected pathogens with the aim of getting effective vaccines. So in January, we had this emergency meeting to decide whether or not this unknown virus was such a threat that CEPI should invest global funds in developing vaccines. And I recall very clearly that one of the colleagues said, this could be pathogen X. Now, pathogen X is something that in global health terms, we've talked about a lot. And this is the pathogen we've all feared for many years. It's, uh, we all thought it would be respiratory, that it had the potential to spread really rapidly around the world, and that it would cause high mortality. And in January of this year, we didn't know if that was the case. But indeed, COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, has turned out to be that pathogen X. CEPI invested in uh, eight vaccines, including the Oxford vaccine that um, Shabir has just described. 
But since then, and I'm going to up uh, Shabir's 115 vaccines in development, there are now 268 candidate vaccines in development, which is unprecedented worldwide in terms of vaccine development. So having uh, talked about that, uh, the, the, the dialogue around vaccines and vaccine development then changed and expanded. The early vaccines that were in development came from the Northern Hemisphere. They were developed in China. They were developed in the UK and the US um, and from more developed economies who were able to, to change rapidly and look at their own technologies and move into vaccine development. The early trials were in the US and the UK and China. The concern that was then raised globally was that we cannot only have vaccine development in the Northern Hemisphere. We really need to have vaccines tried and tested throughout the world in all populations. And there are several reasons for that. One is that we want to know if vaccines are safe and effective in all populations. And to do that, we need to then have this global spread. The second is, and it's something we don't often think about, but it's really true for clinical trials and clinical trial participants, and those of us in research know this. If you talk to people participating in trials, they'll often say, the reason I want to do it is because I want to give back. I want to give something. Or I know somebody who had that disease and I want to protect. I don't want to see that happening again. There is a true sense of altruism from many people who participate participate in trials. And because this is a global pandemic, there needs to be that opportunity for many people around the world to be able to express that solidarity and that global altruism. So that's the second, the, 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 the second reason. But the third reason is that if we participate in trials, there is a, a, a quite a strong moral obligation for us to be able to say, we've helped develop what we hope will be a successful vaccine. Therefore, we want to ensure that the, the people in the country where it was developed and the region in which it was developed have access to those vaccines. Unfortunately, what we're seeing at the moment is what we're calling vaccine nationalism, that in fact, vaccine production is being ring-fenced for particular countries. And obviously, the richer countries and the richer areas are trying to say, my country first and all my citizens first. So there's a very, very important global dialogue now going on about vaccine access, which says, actually, if we develop vaccines, these need to be available to all citizens of the world. There might and will have to be prioritization because the amount of vaccine available to begin with will be limited. And we might have to think about groups such as healthcare workers first. But what we are arguing is that it cannot be my country and my country only first. So what started off as a conversation about pathogenics has become a massive global discussion about access. And one of the last things I'll just mention in this regard is the impact of false news, of anti-vax movements, and of a very unfortunate incident that occurred a few months ago where two French doctors had a dialogue where they talked about uh, vaccine trials in Africa and it was interpreted as being a very oppressive and exploitative approach to participation in vaccine trials. And it has caused a lot of discussion and a lot of concern in the African region. But we have to counter that with the arguments that say, actually, we want to be in trials. We want to participate. We want to be part of this scientific endeavor. 
Minister uh, Zuelian Kize has been part, as, as, uh, as you know, we're part of the, we're leading the African Union at the moment, has already entered into that dialogue on behalf of the African Union about access for, for the African region and is totally supportive of South Africa's participation in trials. Thank you. Thank you for Professor Ries. Uh, and also thank you for giving us the background into the story. And more, most importantly, for clarifying the issue that raised its ugly head a few months ago. Now, um, I'll ask Professor, I'll hand over to Professor Gray, uh, Gray, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the South African Medical Research Council and a research professor in the School of Clinical Medicine at the University of the Wittasrand. Over to you, Prof. Gray. Thank you. Um, DG Sandili Putilezi, um, uh, Zebron Vilakazi, uh, Johnny Mashlangu, um, uh, other colleagues, all protocol observed. It's wonderful to be here today uh, to witness the first, um, the announcement of the first um, coronavirus vaccine to be, um, to be studied in, in, in Africa and indeed in South Africa. So the South African Medical Research Council is uh, a major funder of this program. And for those of you who don't know, um, our mission is to find, is to fund and conduct research that changes the lives of South Africans. So you can see, while well, this is a very important study for us. Um, before the epidemic um, um, uh, started in South Africa, um, a, a group of scientists together with, with members of the Department of Health and the Department, Department of Science and Innovation got together and developed a research strategy for South Africa to try and see how we could um, make local um, innovation to, to combat uh, the COVID epidemic in South Africa. And we were able to mobilize resources and um, get funding from the Department of Science and Innovation and release other funding from the MRC to conduct a, to, to start to fund a whole lot of research in, in South Africa. And this research started off with surveillance, trying to understand um, how the epidemic was unfolding in South Africa. It also uh, entailed investment in, in finding local solutions towards testing. We also um, are collaborating with, um, with, with other funders to, to fund clinical, uh, clinical interventions and therapeutic interventions for COVID infection, as well as um, understanding the immunology of, of, of um, the COVID epidemic in South Africa. What's very important as well is the issue around prevention. And we became very interested in funding work on, on, on vaccine design and development. And we looked at both local um, vaccine design and development as well as collaborating with international groups. And so this is the reason why we have collaborated with the Gates Foundation to fund this very important research that looks at both HIV infected and uninfected people and tries to understand immunology and, and also answer the issues of preliminary efficacy. So this is very important. And this is one of three vaccine trials that will start this year. Uh, very soon, on, on the, we hope the Ad26 J&J uh, program will start, as well as an Ad5 program that we're collaborating with people from Los Angeles. And so we are very proud and very excited to see this program work, and we look forward to seeing Shabir um, uh, expand, expand this to the rest of South Africa, and hopefully the results um, will, will be very encouraging. So uh, it's very great to be here, and um, thank you very much uh, for allowing us to participate. Thank you, Professor Gray. And um, 
College, just a reminder that a press pack was emailed to all of you a few moments ago. Uh, so, you know, following Professor Madi's presentation. So uh, now with Professor Johnny Matlang having joined us, I'd like to hand, him, hand, hand over to him, who is the uh, chair of the uh, South African Medical Research Council and the head of the School of Pathology at Vets University. Johnny? Sorry, um, Professor uh, Villacazi, he's still not able to talk to us. He's in the meeting, but his microphone doesn't want to work. So I think if we can just carry on, we're just trying to get him to be able to connect to us. All right. So then that... Uh, uh, then I'll, have, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over, thank you, uh, Craig. I'll hand over to uh, Professor Jeffrey Pachelle, the Vice President of the uh, South African Medical Research Council. Uh, over, you, over, over to you, Jeffrey. Thank you, uh, Program Director. And uh, good morning, uh, DG, uh, Dr. Sandile uh, Putelezi and colleagues. I think it's quite fitting that uh, we need to congratulate um, uh, Professor Shabir um, uh, for this um, groundbreaking and uh, world-class research. Um, because um, from the perspective of a health science council, as uh, the South African Medical Research Council, um, clinical research uh, certainly uh, offers great opportunity uh, to improve and advance um, the quality of health. Uh, so a new a pathogen like SARS-CoV-2 SARS -CoV um, really requires rapid and responsive uh, research uh, with a view to optimizing development uh, of new health solutions, uh, as you have already had. Uh, so the need for a vaccine obviously cannot be uh, overemphasized. And um, only vaccines are the only proven public health by medical interventions. Uh, to control, eliminate, and um, also eradicate uh, infectious diseases. Uh, we know that uh, it is through uh, the vaccines that uh, we have been able to uh, control um, a dreadful and, um, and um, fatal uh, infectious diseases um, like measles, uh, whooping cough, and uh, hepatitis B. And uh, it's actually through vaccines that we have been able to eliminate um, other infectious diseases um, like tetanus. And um, also just to add that uh, it's through vaccination um, that um, we have been able to uh, eliminate, uh, rather eradicate um, smallpox. And uh, the world now is um, at the cusp um, of uh, eradicating another uh, infectious disease, polio, uh, which um, was crippling and a, and a deadly uh, um, infectious disease as well. So we really know the importance of vaccines and um, you know, the R&D the, the, the uh, in vaccine development is necessary and uh, is something that uh, we need to support um, at this uh, stage uh, because um, it's only through vaccination that we can contain uh, this uh, pandemic, uh, which is due to COVID-19. So we are hopeful um, about this trial that is going to start tomorrow. And um, we think uh, that um, should a vaccine uh, be developed, uh, the first thing is that um, we wish for uh, is that uh, the vaccine would be highly immunogenic um, in the majority of recipients. Uh, we know that um, this might be difficult in other age groups 
like uh, you had from Professor Shebi Amadi uh, in the old age group. Uh, but we are hopeful that um, the vaccine will confer long-lasting or even um, lifetime um, immunity or protection uh, in the majority of recipients in all age groups. Uh, because if that is the case, uh, then we know this COVID-19 vaccine will form the backbone of national immunization programs in many parts of the world. And uh, we need that kind of a vaccine uh, so that um, we can accelerate the control uh, of COVID-19. But not only the vaccine that will um, become the backbone of public health um, uh, vaccination programs, uh, but the vaccine that will offer um, an excellent example uh, in terms of a life course uh, immunization from childhood to elderly, uh, because we know that uh, this uh, COVID-19 uh, is affecting all age groups. And, um, and, and, um, and, and a vaccine that um, is under development now is an excellent candidate uh, for a life course immunization. So with these few words, um, we like to really congratulate and um, support uh, Vets University for this endeavor. And uh, we hope that um, a vaccine will be found. Thank you very much, uh, Program Director. Uh, thank you. Uh... Professor Mpashele, for those kind and encouraging words. And uh, now we'll hand over to Professor Dr. Sandirum Telezi, who will give us a final word, uh, who is a Director General in the National Department of Health. And uh, this will be followed by the Q&A session. And I see a few questions have already been responded to by the panel, but we will now leave the platform open after Dr. Telezi has spoken. Over to you, Dr. Pchilesi. Dr. Pchilesi, can you unmute? Okay, you're, you're mute. One hey. before technology. Uh, thank you very much, um, Professor Villarazi. Uh, and a good morning to the esteemed professors uh, in the panel and members of the media. Um, as a Department of Health, uh, we are very happy and uh, we actually would like to congratulate uh, Professor Madi uh, for this groundbreaking launch uh, of the vaccine uh, here in South Africa. Um, but secondly, we are proud that uh, we are associated uh, with Professor Madi as a member of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 together with the other professors on the call here today. But thirdly, also, we are very proud that South Africa, again, has been placed in the center stage of leading in science. Uh, and as a department, we are always saying that South Africa must always lead from the front. There would have been no better time than today to actually launch this vaccine trial, as the country has reached a landmark, more than 100,000 uh, infections, which we recorded uh, last night. Um, and uh, we've also uh, uh, reached uh, high levels of deaths in the country. And we really believe that uh, it's a way to go. Of course, we currently now only depend mainly on non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions. 
Um, so if there's any way that we can fast check the, our road to getting the vaccine, that will be the long last solution that we'll have as a country. I must say that um, as a country, uh, we are actually... Yes. Yes, as a country, we are, we are currently on stage five to eight uh, stages in terms of the management of the epidemic. And we're really focusing mainly now on hotspots. We've got about 29 in the country in the four high burden provinces. And we are really having targeted interventions, health facility readiness, and ensuring that there's proper clinical management of patients that present to the facilities. So all this work, of course, we, we, we really hope that uh, once we get towards prevention through the vaccine, uh, and we pray that this vaccine development will actually yield positive results in terms of immunogenicity. And we thank uh, the team, especially Professor Madi, uh, MRC, Vets University, and all other collaborating institutions, and we pledge our support as a Department of Health. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh... Thank you, uh, Dr. Butelezi. And we are delighted that, to note that the university and other universities and research entities in the country will have the support at the national policy level through the department and obviously the ministry and the government at large. And your words are very encouraging indeed. So colleagues, this brings us to the final session uh, of the Q&A. So what will happen is that some questions I'm aware have been already fielded and responded to by some of the panelists. So they will come through the Q&A channel. And uh, you know, uh, please, again, state your name and organization uh, who will, who, and who would you like to respond to your questions. And of course, please unmute yourself when asked to do so. So uh, most of the panelists will be available for interviews after the session. Should you wish to set up follow-up interview, please, you can email them to vetsnews, vets.news, N-E-W-S, at vets.ac.za. And uh, so this starts our 30-minute Q&A session. And I see, if you help me here, bear with me for a second, that there are questions that have come through. Uh, the first one comes from Graham Hoskin from Sunday Times, who asks, Please, panelists, note this. How were, who were, so how were the people taking part in the trial selected? First about the selection of the individuals taking part in the trial. The second part of the question is, what kind of questions were they asked? And the last one is on the gender split between men and women of the initial uh, cohort. So I suppose you'll go through question by question. So, who is the respondent? Will it be Professor Mahdi? So, thanks, Ebra. Uh, okay. So, what we've done is that we've basically just uh, sort of sent out messages in Soweto in terms of, at least that's from my site. Like I said, currently in Gauteng, there are three sites that will be involved. And we've been sending out uh, messages to the community in terms of people that might be interested in participating. And to give you an, as, a, as an example, last week, when we sent out our initial, initial message, we had close on to a thousand people that arrived at our clinic in a space of three days, uh, wanting to know more about the study as well as wanting to participate. 
So once an individual comes to the site and indicates an interest to participate, what happens is that they go through a process known as informed consenting, where the staff that are involved in the study will basically uh, engage with the individual in terms of understanding what is their interest in terms of wanting to participate, as well as explaining to them what participation in the study would actually entail. Uh, after that process, what next happens is that the participants are actually provided what we call an informed consent form, and they actually go back home, and they've got the luxury of being able to read it, read it at their own convenience. They are then brought back, and that is start, that has started as from Monday. They are then brought back uh, to basically, if they are interested, they would come back, and then they would engage with the investigators again in terms of whether they're still interested or not. And if they are interested, uh, the investigators would then uh, send them, would ask them to complete the questionnaire, which basically involves a ba uh, which basically involves trying to get an understanding as to how well they actually comprehend what it means to participate in a study, including issues around risk and in terms of what is expected of them. So it's sort of a ten-page, uh, ten-question, uh, ten questions that are asked, uh, which does a sort of a macro assessment in terms of their knowledge, and it is only if they score eight out of the ten that they are actually allowed to participate in the study. If they do not score eight out of ten, we try to go through the process again to heighten the level of understanding of the study. Uh, in terms of males and females, uh, there isn't any sort of uh, predilection for wanting to uh, enroll one or the other group. We're wanting there to be some sort of a balance between men and women that are eventually uh, participating in the study so that the results can be more generalizable. Thank you, uh, Prof. Mari. Uh, the second one is just a comment from the colleague at WITS, uh, which is supportive. Thank you, Robin. Um, the, there's a question from Robinson Nola from Power FM, who asked about the cost of the study. And again, the second part is when do we expect it to have it rolled out if it's approved? So the costs and you know, the timelines of the rollout process. Yeah, so in terms of the cost of the South African study, uh, I mean, usually it costs a few million dollars to be able to do these sort of studies. Uh, the total cost of the South African study is roughly about 150 million rand. Uh, that would be the cost of the South African study. And that is really uh, a study which is done at a relatively low cost compared to what it usually entails to do these sort of intensive studies. In terms of when the vaccine will be rolled out, I think the reality is that uh, our best case scenario is that we would be able to have an answer for this particular vaccine by the end of this year. That is our best case scenario. It might take longer depending on how quickly we accrue outcome cases. But even after that has been completed, it doesn't mean that the vaccine becomes available immediately. Uh, because what needs to then happen is that there needs to be manufacturing plants that are set up, which is currently being done for this vaccine, both in Europe, in the United States, as well as in India. And then the product that comes out from those manufacturing facilities needs to be evaluated in terms of ensuring that they sort of similar to the product that was evaluated. So the best case scenario in terms of when this vaccine might become available will probably be in the third quarter of 2021. Okay. Uh, thank you, 
Um, Could I just add something uh, to that? In terms of vaccine availability, I think that this is a really critical thing to understand because by the, even if we have successful vaccines through clinical trials, uh, it, we will not have enough vaccine by the end of 2021 for the whole world. We're talking billions and billions of doses. Um, and uh, so, so we are going to have to look, as I say, at prioritization. So there is a, a, an in, entire global effort at the moment, which is looking at how do we prioritize? Who do we prioritize? How do we prioritize? And that will depend on the kind of vaccine that is successful because different vaccines have different characteristics. Um, but that is where this global debate about access to vaccines becomes very important. And because it's the media, I would really, really love it if the media takes up this call. We had the same issue with access to antiretrovirals, and now we're seeing a replay potentially with access to a successful vaccine. So I think that this is a drum we must really, really hit very hard in our region because we will be the region that will be left behind otherwise. This is what happened with the pandemic flu vaccine. Africa got very little vaccine and we got it months too late. And we cannot allow that to happen again. So I would really encourage media to take an active interest in this in, in terms of this global debate. Can I add, Zeblon? Can I add? Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say, and that's also why it's important for us to, we hope that not only one vaccine will be successful, we need five or six vaccines to be successful. And so uh, to, to um, make sure that we can scale up to the billions, the billions of doses we need at a global level. And also why it's important for South Africa to be involved in not only one, uh, but many uh, efficacy studies, because if we are involved in the efficacy studies, we know exactly what, how, how it um, was had, how we managed it in South Africa and the regulatory authorities will have experience with the, the vaccine and will make it easier for its license. And so having, having local experience with, a, with an experimental vaccine is critical to the endeavor for licensure. And also it's also critical because if we are involved in uh, efficacy studies, it gives us um, first, in the, first in the queue for access afterwards as well. Thank you. Thank you, Glenda and uh, Helen for the follow-up question, for the follow-up responses. Now uh, on funding again, I think one came out from uh, Liz Cummins from independent media, the Mercury newspaper, regarding funding. So I think I want to just maybe follow up on that. She asked how much funding have the two funders made available for the trial? I mean, are members of the panel able, able to respond to that? Um, so, the South Africa, so the South African Medical Research Council is funding the HIV-infected uh, component of the CHIMP ad program, and it's, it's costing us around 10 million rand. Um, and that, uh, given the fact that we only have around, um, uh, we've managed to secure about 100 million rand to do research in the in the COVID vaccine of COVID epidemic, you can see that this is a huge portion of our funding. But we we remain committed to to um, working with other entities to raise more money to to fund further uh, vaccine trials. And if the Chimp Ad program is found to be effective. Uh, we will work with, with, with the NDOH and the Department of Science and Innovation to raise more money to fund this further. Thank you. Uh, uh, Vinicius Assis from Brazil asked a very interesting question, which most of the panel members can take, is in terms of comparison between how South Africa is managing this pandemic and, of course, with this home country, Brazil, and therefore what are the impressions of the panel members in terms of how do the two countries respond to the pandemic? I mean, that's a tough one. 
I don't know who's uh, going to answer that. I mean, I think the Brazil, I mean, obviously Brazil is a huge country and each of the different states in Brazil have had varying responses, but at a leadership level, certainly the approach of the, of the president in Brazil has been very different from the key leader. The president of South Africa has been probably diametrically opposed to what has happened in Brazil in terms of the manner in which the Prime Minister has basically gone about responding. So South Africa has been much more aggressive than Brazil in terms of trying to slow the rate of transmission of the virus. Uh, they've been much more wanting to be much more enforceful in terms of uh, getting people to adhere to the non-pharmaceutical interventions. But these are both complex societies, both Brazil as well as South Africa. And I don't think uh, it's a correct thing to make comparison between countries. Each country has got its unique challenges, uh, but South Africa, that being said, I think South Africa and Brazil have got a number of similarities. It's an example in terms of inequity within those sorts of societies, as well as issues around access to healthcare. Uh, but it's unfortunate that Brazil is sort of seems to be ahead of the curve compared to where we are in South Africa, and we can only hope that what we experience in South Africa in the next month doesn't uh, sort of mirror what is happening in Brazil at this point in time. Yeah, Brazil is a low middle income country and um, uh, we was, have similar epidemics because of our Gini co coefficient and our, our, our inequity in terms of, of health access. Also our overcrowding and our poverty and, and issues around lack, lack of employment. And I guess what's, what is different to, to, to South Africa, if we look at Brazil, is the issues around um, hydrochloroquine, um, some of the, the issues around, um, first of all, the importance of establishing um, uh, evidence of, of interventions before uh, rolling out or endorsing them. So I think those are important issues. I think that um, the Brazil is, is struggling from what I can see from the media and in the newspapers is that there's a, a huge struggle. Uh, but what's very exciting about uh, Brazil is that they are involved in, um, in, a, in three or four uh, vaccine endeavors, um, you know, and I think that's going to be very exciting to see um, how um, how Brazil responds and how um, the they and how they are able to roll out um, vaccine endeavors and to see whether it works and, and work with South Africa in that in that setting. And so, um, as Shabir says, no no epidemic is the same, and it's very hard to 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 draw parallels because we all have our own issues and we all have our own struggles, and we also have. Um, other um, health and economic issues that are quite different to different parts of the world. Could I add Thank one you. more? Could I okay. add one more comment to that? Uh, and that okay. is that one the, and something else that we share with Brazil is um, a long history of doing HIV research. And one of the things that's very noticeable worldwide is that, and particularly in South Africa, is that quite a lot of the experience that we've gained through doing HIV research and TB research, we're now able to to turn to, to COVID-19. I mean, Shabir described very, uh, very well uh, extensive experience with vaccine development as well, but, uh, but that is something that we do share with Brazil and, and, and it's given us um, exceptional scientists, uh, uh, which, which I think uh, we're lucky to have and who are now turning their minds to, to a new challenge. Thank you. Just a follow-up question on that, uh, Helen, or maybe to Shabir, I don't know, between the two of you, uh, and, and Glenda as well is 
it's also a follow-up question by Graham Hoskin linked to you know the HIV link is as following. Graham Hoskin asks, also from the Sunday Times, how many HIV positive people are taking part? I think uh, Shabit did answer that, word, but can you just you know elaborate? Yeah, so for HIV group, it's basically only 50 participants, half of whom will receive the vaccine and half that will receive the placebo. And what we're really trying to do there is just to see how well they respond to the vaccine in terms of the immune responses. And using the data from the HIV negative group, where we're looking at immune responses as well as whether the vaccine works or not, we would, sort be, we would sort of be able to use the immune responses readout from the HIV infected individuals in terms of getting an estimate as to how well the vaccine would work in that group compared to the HIV negative group. So even though we're not looking for efficacy in the HIV positive group, uh, using the immunogenicity data, we can sort of do bridging in terms of understanding how well the vaccine would work in that group. So we won't need to repeat a full study uh, if the immunogenicity is comparable between people with and without HIV, and the vaccine works in HIV negative group. Okay. Any follow up? Any follow up? Follow up responses? Um, just to yeah. say that in in the efficacy studies, um, one will not discriminate uh, on HIV status, and so when we're looking at the design of the phase three studies, um, we will take um, all comers and, and HIV infected and uninfected. We will obviously um, will look to see whether there is a difference in, in efficacy and whether um, whether HIV affects the shedding or the or, or the protection in any way. So I think that it's very important, and we will make sure that in um, certainly the phase three that I'm involved in is that we will take all comers um, irrespective of HIV status or TB or TB status. Can I just make a personal extension of the question? Actually, I mean, as uh, take advantage of the position of the chair to ask whether does the same apply to TB as well? So, in the current study, if someone has got past TB, they would be included. If they're on stable treatment, they would be included. If they are newly diagnosed of newly diagnosed case of TB, uh, they would. We need to prioritize them getting treated for TB rather than entering into the study. So they will be excluded if they got active uh, TB that, is, that hasn't been on long-term medication or newly diagnosed. Okay. Because the yeah, priority you, of those individuals... Yeah, you, ha you have to uh, stabilize people who are ill first, Zeblon, and so they would need to be stabilized before they were, would be ready for enrolling into a trial. Thank you, Glenda. Thank you, Shabir. Uh, now, there's one, another question from... Um, it's the first question, actually from Tabi Lambele, uh, from SABC Radio News, who asks, under what circumstances would you, I guess, suspend or cancel this trial? Under what circumstances would you suspend or cancel this trial? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question. And as I alluded to in the presentation, uh, throughout the study, including the study that's been done in the United Kingdom and in Brazil, all of the, in real time, there's a data safety, uh, independent data safety monitoring, monitoring committee that reviews whatever is happening in the study. And if there's any concern on their part, they would be able to actually work out whether the person is actually receiving the vaccine or placebo. 
And if there's any suggestion that the vaccine is doing any harm, irrespective of how many people have been enrolled into the study, the study would be terminated immediately. So the Data Safety Monitoring Committee has actually got a prerogative to be able to tell investigators to stop the study immediately. So that's the one case scenario. The second case scenario is if we find a huge number of people that are infected over a short period of time, and we're able to then analyze to whether, the, whether the vaccine works or not. So if we reach 42 cases very rapidly, without having completely enrolled the 2,000 individuals as an example, uh, we would then already be able to see whether the vaccine works or not. And at that point, we will stop enrolling further into the study. So the study can be prematurely terminated, either because there's a safety issue, which the Data Safety Monitoring Committee picks up on, or alternatively, if we find that we're getting large number of cases over a short period of time, which allows us to be able to do an assessment as to whether the vaccine works or not. Okay. Thank you, Shabe. Uh, uh, then we have a question from Catherine Child from Business Day who wants us to clarify how many people in the UK this, va this vaccine has already been tested for in terms of safety. Yeah. So right now there's 7,000 participants in the UK that have already been enrolled into their studies, which includes evaluation of safety and immunogenicity, and they've been followed up for efficacy. And that 7,000 will increase to 10,000 by the end of July. So the UK has already enrolled 7,000 participants in their study. All right. Uh, so just, just to add that, um, and in the US, um, um, over 10,000 people uh, will be enrolled in the, over the next couple of weeks as well. So there's going to be massive expansion and evaluation of this vaccine all over the world. Uh, just a follow-up question that maybe, you know, uh, I'll, I'll actually ask Helen to feel that one or, or, or John or Jeffrey is from Catherine Child, a follow up to the earlier one from Business Day. Is she asked why do we expect some vaccines to work when, you know, for example, there's no TB vaccine after years of study? There's no TB vaccine after years of study. Well, we, we have PCG and, we, and we're looking at some others. So, but it's a, it's a fair question. I think the first thing to, to say is that every pathogen, in fact, if Johnny could speak, he's the one that should answer this, um, and Jeffrey actually, but every pathogen is completely different. Look at the years of study for HIV. Um, and some pathogens have proved to be easier to form to, to develop vaccines for than, than others. So, so that's that's the the, the, the first thing to say. Um, the, the, so, so the the second thing that I think is somewhat encouraging is that we have got a backdrop to the development of these vaccines, which comes from MERS and the, the original SARS outbreak. So vaccines were in development for both MERS, in fact, currently are in development for MERS and were in development for SARS. So we had vaccines that we'd already seen showed signs of, had very strong signals, uh, both from, from animal and preclinical data, but also in some cases from clinical data, uh, that these would be effective. But of course, SARS went away, but MERS vaccines are still being developed, and these are also coronaviruses. So, so that's the second thing that gives us optimism, is that, you know, a similar, in this, in this class of virus, it looks like we can, we can do this. Um, the third thing is, and it goes to an earlier question we didn't touch on, is 
why select some, some vaccines and not others? And of course, it depends who's at the front of the queue. I mean, that's part of it. But also, we do get a sense of how vaccines might work by looking at the preclinical data and the animal model data. And if that looks hopeful, then there's good reason to be optimistic that we will be able to find um, vaccines that work. I think my last point on this, and Shabir showed it very clearly, is that we're using not only established vaccine technologies here, but we're using completely novel vaccine technologies, which might in fact give us a, a sort of ahead a, a, a in, the, in, the, in this race uh, by using things that we think might be um, very immunogenic and, and really cause a, a, a very strong response in, in the human immune system. So, but we'll have to wait and see. And let's hope we're not like HIV in the end of this. Thank you. Uh, I see we've got uh, Johnny. Oh, Johnny's back. Johnny and Jeffrey, can you please uh, from your... Uh, 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 apologies, from uh, Chair. Um, I had some technical difficulties, but... Uh, I agree completely with uh, Helen's uh, reasons why we should continue to try. Uh, and the one reason perhaps in my view that uh, is, is also important is that um, this particular condition currently does not have a treatment or cure. Uh, prevention is uh, our approach to managing this condition and developing a vaccine uh, is probably uh, the best approach that we can do uh, in the absence of a cure. Thank you, Johnny. Jeff? Yes, uh, thank you very much, um, uh, Program Director. Maybe I can just add uh, to what um, my colleagues have already indicated. Um, I think from my side, uh, the fact that we have not seen uh, reinfections uh, from people who have recovered uh, from this disease uh, is a sign that uh, there is some form of protection um, if you get infected. Um, so we have seen that um, globally there are a number of people who have uh, been exposed to the virus and uh, they, you know, cleared the virus and uh, they developed uh, some form of protection. We just don't know how long this protection is going to be, and whether it's going to be a year or maybe a couple of years or, or for a lifetime. We don't know at this stage, uh, but uh, it looks like there is a sign of protection. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that um, for vaccine development, um, you definitely need to identify what we call correlates uh, of protection. And in this case, uh, with COVID-19 virus, um, we know from many uh, animal studies uh, that um, the spike proteins that are on the surface of the viral um, of, of the virus, um, they seem to induce uh, protective um, or neutralizing antibodies. So that that is important, and um, and and um, we have also seen that. Um, uh, for a number of uh, vaccine candidates, um, if you use these uh, spike proteins, um, they can um, induce some form of um, you know, protection. And then the last thing is that um, um, we seem to be lucky um, with this virus because uh, it's, it's genetically stable. Um, so we don't have a lot of mutations. And because of that, um, whatever vaccine that is developed, uh, it should be able to work 
uh, in different parts of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I just have another follow-up question from Graham Hoskin. It uh, required a bit, she, he wanted to understand from Helen regarding um, novel technologies that uh, Prof. Reese, you referred to. Can you just quick, give a quick answer to that? Because I know that you're under a bit of pressure of time now. Yes, so, uh, uh, you'll have to excuse me because I'll have to, to leave this. Um, I think Shabir showed it uh, very nicely in one of his slides that there are a range of technologies that are being looked at in terms of the, the sort of the, the, the vaccine construct. And some of them, as he described, are things that are tried and tested and that we use in current vaccines. And others are really very novel and we haven't got vaccines yet, but they have different ways of working. Um, and the ways of working would, would influence things like how much an immune response they evoke, whether you need one dose or you need two doses, um, and what kind of side effects you could anticipate in advance with different constructs of a vaccine. But I don't know, Shabir, you want to, to come back and just revisit that slide. I, don't know, I can also add, you know, so the, yeah. the ad the ad based platform is, is has been very useful. So the, the uh, both for cancer as as I think Johnny also mentioned, as well as for Zika and um, for Ebola. And so so the the platform um, so the ad twenty six, ad five and um, chimp ad platforms have been critical for the in, for other vaccine programs. So to understand the immunogenicity um, and then to use specific antigens, as Jeffrey said, using the spike protein um, into the chimp ad platform um, in, um, is, 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 a, is, a, is a modern way of, of um, approaching um, uh, um, um, emerging pathogens. And, that, and there's been good success with Zika. Uh, with the Ad26 platform using that that approach as well um, now um, with um, the chimp ad as well. So maybe you can talk about the the, the role of adeno associated platforms for both cancer and a new um, and new viral infections like Zika and Ebola and re-emerging and and now with um, uh, uh, the coronavirus Shabir. So thanks, Glenda. So I agree with what Glenda said. Uh, I'm not. I mean, I think the important thing is that even though there aren't vaccines that are licensed, uh, which are sort of DNA or RNA vaccines or the viral vector vaccines, which is a new technology that we're referring to, this technology has been used for other purposes, which I sort of alluded to in terms of, as an example, developing vaccines against cancer or trying to correct for genetic abnormalities. So this technology has been used for other purposes. And one of the major advantages of these technologies uh, is that uh, firstly, the type, uh, in terms of scaling up production, uh, there's great, much greater potential to scale up the production of these nucleic acid sort of vaccines or viral vector vaccines. The chimp vaccine that we're looking at, in fact, this particular vector has already been used to develop a vaccine against SARS virus and MERS virus. Uh, so that was in 2002 and 2012. So this technology was already used to develop vaccines against those organisms, but unfortunately, well, fortunately, uh, those sort of uh, outbreaks burnt out and there wasn't any need for further development. So like Glenda mentioned, there's a number of this number of vaccine constructs, as you can see on this slide, uh, more than 25 just at this time, that probably number has probably increased to 50 in terms of the number of people that are looking at viral vector vaccines. Uh, so, 
But I think importantly is that this technology has been used previously for other purposes and it is licensed uh, for other purposes. Johnny, maybe you want to comment about Thank the you. role Can of this genetic. Yeah. Johnny might want to comment about the role of these in genetic um, um, abnormalities and the, your work that you're doing. Um, yeah, uh, I'll be very brief, Glenda. I think uh, we must just keep in mind that uh, whilst we, we all uh, strive for preventative vaccines, uh, there may well be other influences, um, including the genetics uh, that might uh, allow some individuals to respond better to vaccines than others. I think uh, that is an obvious thing that we always keep in mind. Uh, but we don't use that as an exclusion criteria for uh, individuals to participate in vaccine trials such as this one. Thank you very much, Felix. I know that we are slightly running out of time, so I'll just uh, uh, take maybe a just quick follow-up from uh, Catherine, cluster it with the other one as well, regarding uh, Catherine Child asked, is trial wanting 100% protection against the virus, right? Uh, low or higher? What are, what, how, if, what is the efficacy of, that you expect? And um, it's linked to one by Mia Malan from Peggy Caesar. So I want to just cluster them. What minimum level of care will be provided to participants? You know, that's an easy one to, uh, to, res to respond to. If colleagues, one of you can just do them as a cluster, and then you can just do, do, do two more questions because we're running out of time. Thank you. So, Zabrin, I'll take that. So, in I mean, there's no vaccine that's ever going to have 100% efficacy. That, there is no vaccine that has 100% efficacy. Uh, the way the study is designed is that we're trying to establish whether there's, there is at least 60% efficacy. So, we've got enough number of individuals participating that allows us to assess whether there is at least 60% efficacy. Uh, and I think we shouldn't get sort of hooked onto this issue as to a specific point estimate, because what's more important than efficacy is what we call the number of people that need to be vaccinated to prevent one illness. So there's another measure which is much more important from a public health perspective in that you can have a vaccine that's only 50% 50, 50 efficacious, but it can prevent more people from becoming sick compared to having a vaccine that's 90% efficacious, but for a disease that is very rare. But the short answer is that we're trying to see whether there is at least 60% protection against COVID-19. It might be higher, it might be lower. If it is lower, our study wouldn't have enough what we call power to be able to conclusively say that the vaccine works or not. In terms of uh, protection to study participants, all of the study participants are obviously counseled in terms of the importance of non-pharmaceutical interventions. The study participants are provided uh, non-surgical face masks, they provided uh, sanitizers, and that is as far as we can go in terms of trying to get people to understand and to get them to minimize their risk of becoming infected. So even though the vaccine is very, the study is very dependent on people getting infected, which is going to be an unfortunate reality. At the same time, we're making all efforts within our disposal to get people to understand the importance of non-pharmaceutical interventions and providing them with whatever tools we have available to us to reduce their risk of becoming infected. Thank you, Shabi. That's a, uh, a nice follow-up question on that. And then before we start closing, uh, with two more quick questions is 
it's about the uh, efficacy and genetic, you know, population genetics, right? So what works for the UK or Brazil uh, will not show efficacy among our local populations, uh, you know, because the vaccine has developed in the UK. So in terms of the gen genetic response factor, what are the uh, variables you have in mind, uh, Prof. Mahdi? Yeah, so absolutely important question. And that's the reason why it's absolutely essential to actually evaluate these vaccines in different settings. Because we do know with COVID-19 that there is a possibly a genetic predisposition in terms of who is developing more severe disease. As an example, people with blood group A seem to be more susceptible to developing severe disease. As part of the studies, both in Brazil, in South Africa, as well as in the UK, we are actually doing some genetic analysis of the participants. And at the end of the day, we'll be able to combine the results from all three studies together with the genetic information that we've been able to accumulate to see to what extent uh, the genetics of an individual might lend itself to increased susceptibility for COVID-19, as well as what impact it might actually have in terms of the vaccine efficacy. Thank you. Uh, colleagues, just before I, I close with the last two questions, uh, and then I'd just like to also acknowledge the uh, Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences. As you know, most of the researchers from vets are within that faculty. Professor Martin Vela, who's, uh, who's here, is basically under his, you know, his guidance as a dean of the faculty that the appropriate resources were made available and the academic environment made, 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 made allowed for conditions for such excellent uh, work to be done. Uh, thank you, Martin. Um, I uh, have just one question that is linked to the, to, to the first one about the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Tanya, Tanya Faber. I think Helen did answer it, but the damage about fake news uh, that came out from, you know, about Bill Gates, uh, the so-called unethical trials in Africa. I mean, there's fake news, but I think there's been damage. And the other one that is linked to that, I think they're both the last part of the class of last questions is, you know, there's obviously a global debate. It, this, this, this question comes from Freda Ho from Spotlight. Is how, how, how do we ensure that South Africa and the continent and broadly, the poor countries in the global south are not last in the line to access any vaccine. So the first one is on, you know, they're all on unethical and, and, and social impact of the vaccine, on fake news, and the other one is now on the queue for the first uh, vaccine. If you can I'll take that. Answer and those. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, South African, South African scientists and African scientists have to be there um, to to support the clinical development of vaccines, and if if we're not putting our if our scientists are not involved, it becomes very hard to navigate the the registration and and, um, and access. So I think it's critical for African scientists and South African scientists to be involved in the clinical development of these vaccines and um, and show our ability to to conduct clinical research in in Africa. Um, African scientists and, 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 and Africa is a very important, a very important continent for understanding um, disease and, um, and, um, and, and genetic responses to disease. And so we cannot be left out of any clinical development. And it's important that we continue to, to pursue clinical research in, in Africa. Um, African scientists are, 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 are highly capable. They're exportable across the world. Um, we see a diaspora um, that gets stolen. And so the only way we can keep our capacity in, in Africa is to make sure that we, 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 we pursue a research and scientific agenda 
that keeps our scientists here and are responsive to the, the diseases that, that most afflict us in, in Africa. And so I think that um, we want to be involved in research and we want to be part of the, the research endeavor and we want to make a huge contribution just like everybody else in the world. And we need to make science flourish uh, in Africa. Thank you, Glenda. Um, I've got a minute now because technology has gives you a hard cut off. So uh, I think uh, with that, I just maybe if there's any closing comment within the next minute or 30 seconds, then we close. Then you're gonna go offline. Shabby? Uh, no, so just to thank everyone for making the time to uh, participate in this webinar and hopefully we'll be able to provide you with uh, sort of progress reports uh, on a re regular basis through the WITS communications office. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and again, if you haven't answered any questions, we had a pressure of time. I'd like to acknowledge all the panelists, uh, the organizing team behind this effort. In particular, congratulate Shabir Mahdi and his colleagues for this excellent start uh, of the blocks to, to, to what looks like a uh, very promising um, in a, a process towards us developing vaccines in partnership with our partners to meet the challenges that are posed by this global health crisis. The members of the media for responding and participating. And uh, in the last 10 seconds left, I'd like to thank everyone. And again, um, let's all stay safe and keep our social distancing and wash our hands. Thank you very much. This ends our Q&A for this COVID-19 vaccine study launched. I thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. 88.1. Or stream, stream. via www.vafm.co.za.